Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up this hour, it's been a year since D.C. voters legalized marijuana. We'll hear from a local entrepreneur starting the district's first college of cannabis. You have to understand that when you're growing indoors, you have become Mother Nature. You control the sun, you control the rain, you control the soil. But first... We'll head to D.C.'s Capitol Hill neighborhood. We are walking up 11th Street Southeast to a house. We're looking for 219. That, in the early 1970s, 223, 221, helped fuel the fire. Here we are. Of the Women's Liberation Movement. Hi. You must be Mark. Yes. I'm Rebecca. Nice to meet you. Hello, Robert. How are you? Good. How are you? Mark Meinke is co-founder of Rainbow Heritage Network. That's a coalition of preservationists and gay rights activists working to protect LGBTQ heritage sites. Now he's heading an effort to grant historic landmark status to this house, which DC tour guide, historian, and author Robert Pohl bought in 2003. Can you show me around? Of course. Um, why don't we start right here? This is, this is my wall of house history, um, including this picture right here, which is indeed the Furies in the basement of this house. Robert found out about these lesbian feminist separatists known as the Furies Collective after he moved into the house and Googled his address. He discovered that the Furies lived and worked here as they sought to destroy sexism and overthrow the patriarchy they felt ruled society. And as the photo on the wall shows, they used the basement to publish their national tabloid newspaper, also called the Furies, between 1971 and 1973. So yeah, the the is taken from about here. This would have been right, right over here. Exactly. This was the layout table for the newspaper. Okay, yeah, that makes total sense there. As one of the original Furies, Ginny Burson remembers those days well. You know, when it came time to then actually sit down and lay out the paper, it was a very long and tedious process that I seem to remember going on all night for several nights. And of course, we were younger and we could stay up late. Ginny, who spoke with me from her home in California, wrote the newspaper's very first cover story. In it, she explained why the Furies named themselves after the Greek female spirits of justice and vengeance. The Furies were basically done wrong by gods who we, you know, translated as male supremacists, as patriarchs. And they were the goddesses of vengeance. And although our vision was much broader than um, vengeance, I mean, we actually had a positive vision of a much friendlier, more equitable world. We were very angry. With the 1969 Stonewall riots so fresh in collective memory, the 1970s were a challenging time for gays and lesbians. But Ginny remembers Capitol Hill as one of the more gay-friendly areas of Washington. Hence the Fury's decision to set up shop at 219 11th Street Southeast. In those early days, that was all we had our homes, and the lesbian and gay bars. Capitol Hill had two lesbian bars, both on 8th Street Southeast. The oldest was Joanna's. What I remember about it is that it was very dark. Uh, It had a jukebox and a dance floor and tables. And I remember the floors being very sticky. A few doors down was phase one. Which we called the phase. And it's interesting because there were gay male bars that were so much nicer than the lesbian bars. And the gay men didn't really want us there. And so we would go there to annoy them. And also just because they had better lights and more space. But 219 11th Street was mission central for the Furies. As separatists, they created their own mini society under its roof. 
sharing clothing and chores, even offering home and auto repair classes so women wouldn't have to depend on men. And they saw lesbianism as the ultimate expression of this non-reliance on males. As Ginny wrote in her first cover story, lesbianism is not a matter of sexual preference, but rather one of political choice, which every woman must make if she is to become woman-identified and thereby end male supremacy. We were developing a lesbian feminist politic. We were saying lesbianism is not just who you sleep with. It's a political act, and a lot of women came out because of the Furies, and a lot of lesbians became feminists because of the Furies. But above all, she says, a lot of dialogue began. At the time, women all over the country were reading the Furies and having discussion groups about it and letting it inform their own thinking. The Furies newspaper lasted just 11 issues. The collective disbanded in 1973. But despite its brief life, I think of it as like a star that burned really bright for a short period of time. Lesbian feminist history scholar Julie Enzer, who teaches at the University of Maryland, says the Furies left a lasting legacy. Their ideas traveled. Their ideas about living in a separatist household, about putting their time and energy into work that only benefited women. Those ideas took hold at this time in the United States when feminism was really growing and spreading. And the Furies' message will live on in a very tangible way if the D.C. Historic Preservation Review Board makes 219 11th Street a local landmark. From there, it could join the National Register of Historic Places, where it would be the fifth LGBTQ site on the list, out of the roughly 80,000 eligible. There are not a lot of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender landmarks that are recognized. Um, Stonewall is one. But one of the amazing things about the Furies House is that it was a site of lesbian activism. And we're at a time when we can see lesbians as a part of what the American story is. Not that lesbians haven't always been a part of that story, Julie Enzer says. But the Furies House is really lesbians as a part of the American story who were angry about the status of women and wanted to change that. And that's also a part of what our legacy is. People who might challenge the American narrative as it exists and rewrite it to include lives in different ways. The D.C. Historic Preservation Review Board is expected to hold a hearing on the House this December. You can see that photo of the Furies laying out their newspaper in the basement of 219 11th Street Southeast on our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can find links to the newspaper itself, including the very first edition with Ginny Burson's cover story. Again, head to metroconnection.org. The Furies Collective disbanded in 1973. That was the same year the United States Supreme Court issued its landmark Roe v. Wade decision, ruling that a woman's right to an abortion falls within the right to privacy granted by the 14th Amendment. But the controversy surrounding abortion and abortion rights hasn't gone away. If you've ridden Metro lately, you may have seen this series of ads, the ones that say, abortion, yeah, we do that. The billboards are for an abortion clinic in Friendship Heights, Maryland. Carafem, as it's called, opened in April. 
Karen Turner brings us this look at how, with abortion rights under attack in Congress, CARE-FM is trying to normalize the procedure. I heard she had appendicitis. In an advertisement for well, CARE-FM, three women are dressed in 1950s clothing, beating around the bush. Appendicitis. And a fourth is from the modern day. Wait a minute. You guys are talking about abortion. Because there's no shame in it. Abortion. Yeah, we do that. Usually, family planning services don't lead with the word abortion. Planned Parenthood touts all the other services it provides, emphasizing that abortion accounts for just 3% of all of their health services. But Melissa Grant, vice president of CARE-FM, says they're not trying to hide it. We're not ashamed. It's a service that we provide, and women need to know where to find it. So we talked about it a little differently and a lot more openly. Grant says the approach is part of a larger push to normalize abortion. Now we're finding that women are speaking to each other oftentimes much more freely. They're answering and asking questions that perhaps wouldn't have been comfortable being asked in previous generations. So I think that has left a demand for someone to come out and speak very openly, very unapologetically about these services. Take, for example, a social media campaign that uses the hashtag ShoutYourAbortion. Women online are coming forward about their experiences in an effort to remove stigma. Professor Carol Joffe of the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health at the University of California, San Francisco, says it's evidence of a deepening polarization. I think lines are hardening on both sides. The witch hunts we're seeing now against Planned Parenthood in turn has created, I think, a, a very re- a, a renewed pro-choice activism. It's hard to say, has it become more routinized, more normalized? For some people, yes. For some people, no. Melissa Grant with CARE-FM says their ad's approachable attitude towards abortion extends to the clinic atmosphere. Second counseling room. So we have flowers. We try to have nice smells going on. Just little things that make people feel more relaxed. The idea is to make a comfortable space that encourages open conversation. I think the thing that makes us different in that way is simply looking for things like not using harsh chemical smells and trying to make sure that the atmosphere smells pretty, looks comfortable. So it's not necessarily that all of our clients would look to have a pedicure when they come into the office, but the idea would be that it doesn't feel like a hospital. Which it doesn't, right down to the lack of surgical equipment in Carafem's exam rooms. The clinic doesn't do surgeries. It only offers the abortion pill, mifepristone. Clients pick it up from the clinic and can control when and where they want to take it. The medications that are used for medication abortion do act similarly to a very early miscarriage. For some women, the idea of taking anesthetic or having an overly medicalized experience, something that's more like a traditional surgical exam room, feels um, less personable to them. They like the idea of having their body do the work versus a surgical instrument do the work. For the abortion rights movement, keeping this option available is important for the sense of privacy and ease of access it can offer. Carol Joffe with the Bixby Center says many advocates hoped the pill would help normalize abortion since its approval 15 years ago. The original vision was precisely to avoid the shame, the stigma, uh, having to deal with protesters. If indeed um, mifepristone was really diffused throughout the medical system, Uh, You would go to your local family physician, for example, or your local health clinic. Some people in the waiting room are there for blood pressure checks, other people there for sore throats, some people there to get their mifepristone. But that accessibility worries anti-abortion activists. 
Jaffe says that's one reason it's so hard to get in some parts of the country. Abortion politics always intrudes. So the fondest hopes for what Mifepristone, the abortion pill, would do, so far have not been realized, uh, or at least have not been realized in a number of the states where there's many, many restrictions. Restrictions in other states include requiring a clinician to be present when taking the pill, or using outdated FDA protocols that require a higher and more expensive dosage. Mifepristone is just one front in the anti-abortion war. For Melissa Grant at CareFem, the pill is simply another option for women, not necessarily better or worse than surgical abortion. Women respond best when they're given full information about both options so that they can look at their current life situation and decide what fits in best. I'm Karen Turner. Time for a break, but when we get back, the general manager train has finally left the station. We get the inside track on WMATA's soon-to-be GM. I'm not expecting a day one miracle. I'm expecting within six months a serious plan and within a year serious results. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. I'm Rebecca Shearer. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Coming up... It's no real oneness, unity. The electricity is not really flowing honestly. Why some veteran members of a long-running D.C. drum circle say the beat just isn't the same. But before we get to the music, we'll spend some time with Metro. It seems the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority simply cannot stay out of the news these days. Its board of directors has been trying to hire a new general manager. Trains seem to refuse to run on time. Plummeting ridership is carving a chasm in the transit agency's budget. And covering all of these issues for WAMU has been transportation reporter Martin DeCaro. Hello, Martin. Been a little busy lately? No, not at all. Why do you ask? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we're glad you're able to join us today. Um, Let's start with some pretty major news, the latest on Metro's general manager search. Metro held a board meeting on Thursday. What did you learn? Metro has finally completed the search, and they've made their choice. It was the runner-up for the job. His name is Paul Wiedefeld, and people in Maryland would be familiar with his name. He ran BWI Airport in two separate stints. He was one time the head of the Maryland Transit Administration. He also used to work for the construction and engineering giant Parsons Brinkerhoff. In some, he has a long career in both the public and private sector, but the story became less about him and more about the process that had taken place. Because earlier in the week, Neil Cohen, the number one pick, an airline industry executive, aerospace industry executive, had dropped out of contract talks, and we can get to him a little bit about why he did that. But in the meantime, it'll be Paul Wiedefeld and Mort Downey, the Metro board chairman, uh, discussed why he was the right man for the job. He's been through the mill, he's run big agencies, and he's smart. He's long experience, ran MTA Baltimore, ran what is one of the best airports in America, 
knows about operations, knows about safety, has worked in other places where he's learned things. I just think he's got the background and ready to go. And most importantly, the board is ready to work with him. So Mort Downey, he's the head of the Metro board. What does his future hold? He was asked about that, and he sounds like someone who's prepared to step down as chairman of the board next year. His term ends December 31st. The nominating committee will make a decision on that, and I doubt that I will want to be considered for another year as chairman. I've also put my heart and soul into this over a year, and I sometimes feel like it's been two years. All right, so earlier you mentioned Wiedefeld was the number two choice. Neil Cohen was the top pick, but he pulled out. Explain for us why that whole thing fell apart. Cohen, according to our sources, and according to Jack Evans publicly, who is one of the members of the hiring committee, was not ready for public scrutiny. He was not ready to make the leap from private to public sector. And maybe in the long run, it'll turn out that Metro made a right decision here because part of the job of being the general manager of Metro with 13,000 employees and hundreds of thousands of customers is dealing with the public and dealing with the news media. Well, that leads me to ask, if this guy is so reluctant to be you know, out in the public eye, how did he become a finalist in the first place? That's a good question. We don't have a full answer yet. You know, the unraveling of his candidacy, if you will, spurred a lot of outrage in our region. Let's listen to Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe. This is one of the greatest metro systems in the globe, and the foolishness and unprofessional manner and the way this has been handled by the board is a disgrace. So Jack Evans, we mentioned he was a member of the hiring committee here. He was asked about Governor McAuliffe's comments, other comments, whether or not this process has injured Metro. It took over a year to find a new general manager, and this is what Council Member Evans had to say. I do not appreciate, and I will say this very publicly, uh, some of the elected officials in the region and their, uh, I believe, asinine comments. Uh, Really. Well, I saw the governor in Virginia. I saw a couple Congress people, one of my colleagues on the council, calling us the Keystone Cops, et cetera. Really, give me a break. And Martin, all of this drama behind the scenes is happening at a time when things are equally dramatic on the rails. I mean, it seems Metro cannot get through one rush hour without issues. Yes, let's talk about that. You know, general managers are important, but what's more immediately important to commuters is running the trains on time. Uh, Metro's latest report card, it's called Vital Signs. It's a quarterly report card. For the second straight quarter, Metro missed its targets for on-time performance, fleet reliability, and customer satisfaction for both bus and rail. I mean, that that pretty much confirms what commuters have been seeing and saying just about every morning. It's very frustrating. And let me give you a couple of examples. Metro needs to run 954 rail cars to prevent overcrowding on its six lines during rush hour. Metro didn't reach that threshold on a single weekday in July or in August or most of September. I'm no transit expert, but why? Parts, spare parts. Listen to this excerpt from the report. By the end of September, over 50 cars were indefinitely parked due to a lack of parts. The exact figure is 62 rail cars. That's a significant percentage when you know that Metro has just over 1,100 rail cars in its entire fleet. So with so many cars parked, you've got fewer trains running, which means more crowding. That's right. Metro is reporting that trains are over capacity at more of its busiest stations today than one year ago. And the trains that are in service are running late. Ooh, that's rough. Uh, We're running out of time here, so let me ask, Martin, uh, any good news to report? Well, let's remember, in spite of everything, Metro does a million trips a day on its rail and bus line, so that's something. But we still have this convergence of so many problems, unreliable commutes, disappearing riders, budget problems, safety lapses. 
All of it happening without permanent leadership at the top. That will finally change as Metro has decided upon a general manager who has to sign his contract still. Well, Martin DeCaro, thank you for the update. Anytime, Rebecca. What do you think of Metro's pick for the new general manager? Let us know. Send us an email. Metro at WAMU.org is our address. Or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. If you happen to be 15 years old right now and live in Washington, D.C., you could get to vote in the next presidential election. That is, if district lawmakers approve a bill introduced earlier this week. Two jurisdictions in the Maryland suburbs, Tacoma Park and Hyattsville, have already lowered their voting ages. In Tacoma Park, the first election after the change was in 2013. A total of 1,200 people cast ballots. That's about 10.1 percent turnout. But, says city clerk Jesse Carpenter, among the newly enfranchised teenagers, the rate was much higher. 44 percent of the number of 16 and 17-year-olds registered to vote. Now, in Tacoma Park and Hyattsville, these teens can only vote in local elections. So for mayor and city council, D.C. would be the first jurisdiction in the nation to allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote in federal elections. The effort in the district is the brainchild of local activist and go-go singer Michelle Blackwell. As she told Patrick Madden, the idea that young people need a voice in politics came about this summer after an acquaintance was killed in southeast Washington. Back in August, a young woman, Tanika Fontenelle, um, was murdered by a 17-year-old, actually. And um, she was protecting her son. And uh, there was an emergency meeting called. She actually was also a uh, singer in a band, just just by coincidence. Um, the name of the band was um, called SOS. She was a really, really sweet young lady. In any event, there was an emergency meeting um, called in Ward 7 to address some of these issues. There were some community leaders, even Mayor Muriel Bowser came later on right. in the meeting. Kathy Lanier was there and Yvette Alexander, who is the council member for Ward 7. And uh, there was a group of young people patiently waiting for about an hour, I would say. They weren't unruly, although some of the adults were. And when it um, became time for the young people to speak, they actually had some really great ideas and um, some concerns that I felt were being dismissed. And at one point, one of the adults even took the microphone from one of the young people and started lecturing them. And I thought it was, you know, really rude and disrespectful and also short-sighted. When did you have this eureka moment that, you know what, these officials will listen to young people if these young people can vote? When did you get that idea? Well, I started thinking about actually that night. You know, I started thinking about um, just ways to get young people's voices heard. Um, so I thought about it and I started to, you know, to do some research online about it. You always hear that young people never turn out during elections. Why do you think if we lower the age to 16 that, that these 16-year-olds are going to come out and get engaged and vote? Well, based on the research that I've done, the reason why a lot of younger voters that are adults are not voting is because by the time they turn 18, okay, let's say you finally get the right to vote. Well, what are you doing? You're going off to college. You're going to the military. You're you're figuring out what you want to do as an adult. And, and you're, you're less not, grounded in the community. Absolutely. So you're not necessarily as likely to either go back or send in an absentee ballot ballot and you know that once you develop habits they say that by the time you're 18 if you haven't vote if you don't vote 18 every year after that that you don't vote you're less likely to become engaged the voting age it was last changed nationwide in 1971 that was during the Vietnam War yes and 
there was a sense that if, if people could be drafted to go and fight and die for their country, mm -hmm. they should have the right to vote for the officials that are sending them to war. Absolutely. You started this effort in part because of the violence that we were seeing here in D.C. Mm -hmm. the, the, the surge in homicides has been up 50 percent this year. Absolutely. And many of the victims have been young people. Yes. Do you see any comparisons between the last effort to lower the voting age to 18 and what's going on here in D.C. to lower it to 16-year-olds? You know, people who choose to go and fight and die in a war, they've made the choice to do so, whereas young people here have no choice um, when it comes to their environment and are still dying on the streets. More to the point, young people are also at 16 able to be charged as an adult. And if you can be held uh, as a responsible adult when it comes to consequences and you're sophisticated enough to um, understand the law and make decisions as an adult when it comes to being charged as one, then there's an argument there that you should be um, able to be given a right to vote. That was local activist Michelle Blackwell speaking with Patrick Madden. The Youth Vote Amendment Act of 2015 was introduced by council members Charles Allen, David Grosso, and Brianne Nadeau. For a closer look at the bill, visit our website, MetroConnection.org. Another issue D.C. lawmakers are facing right now is whether to legalize physician-assisted death. Oregon was the first state to do so back in 1997, and lately the so-called Right to Die movement has been gaining momentum. Last month, California became the fifth state to allow doctors to write lethal prescriptions for terminally ill patients. And so far this year, some two dozen other states have seen similar legislation introduced. In the district, the issue is sparking passionate debate. At a hearing in July, lawmakers listened to more than nine hours of testimony from 70 witnesses. It is a myth to say this bill has adequate safeguards against abuse. Depressed people will be harmed by this bill. This death with dignity law would give me an option, an option that I may very well need. Violet Ekonomova tells us why, even with nearly 70 percent of the public supporting assisted suicide, passing legislation may be a challenge. Come on, sit. It's hard to tell Susan Ferris has a terminal illness as she plays with her dogs behind her southeast D.C. row home. Sydney, good girl. Susan has stage 4 breast cancer that spread to her liver, but she's had luck using targeted therapies to treat it. Daily life is basically being grateful that I'm able to move and do things. And I basically I have some pain, but not a lot. So I'm just grateful that I'm able to be able to work and enjoy life. But the treatment is not a forever fix. Cancer cells become resistant to targeted therapies, and Susan is on her third round of drugs. It's all about staying ahead of the curve and staying alive long enough for the next treatment to come out. With several FDA-approved drugs in the pipeline, Susan expects she'll be ahead of that curve for a while. But she also knows that eventually her luck will likely run out. I'm afraid of dying, but I'm more afraid of suffering uh, because it's very painful. I mean, there's the pain that comes from the cancer in the bones. At a certain point, um, as things progress, the cancer will spread throughout the body. Um, if it spreads to the brain, there are seizures and, and headaches. If it spreads to the fluid around the lining of the lungs, the fluid will build up around the lungs and suffocate the person. It just becomes 
a life of pain um, and suffering and, and waiting. The fear over her final months is why Susan supports the Death with Dignity Act making its way through D.C. Council. Right to die advocates like Kim Callanan with the group Compassion and Choices say assisted suicide is a last resort and its legalization is more than anything meant to give people like Susan peace of mind. What we know from Oregon and from the data that's here and there and there's 17 years worth of data in Oregon so it's quite extensive is that very few people actually choose to take the medication. Indeed, people who request the drug represent a fraction of a percent of annual deaths in Oregon. And of those who request it, a third of them never end up taking it. A total of 850 people in the state have died by lethal dose between 1998 and 2014, about 50 people a year. But those who oppose assisted suicide aren't comforted by those numbers. On the campus of Catholic University in Northeast D.C., Lucia Selechia, a law professor with expertise in elder law and estate planning, says passing the Death with Dignity Act will lead to abuse. Legally, there's a lot about this statute that is problematic. Chief among Selechia's concerns are the bill's so-called safeguards, which require two doctors to give a six-month prognosis and confirm the patient is mentally sound. Selechia says because just about any two doctors are allowed to do this, the provision leaves room for doctor shopping. She also has issues with a requirement that two people witness the request for the deadly prescription. Only one of them has to be a disinterested witness, which means the other witness could be a relative. It could also be somebody who stands to gain financially from the death of the person, either through their will, through their life insurance. And once the patient actually gets the lethal dose, there's no requirement that anybody be present while it's administered which means that the person could have the vial of medicine in their home and be coerced by a family member into taking it, could be given that without even knowing what it is. It's for reasons like these that many disability rights advocates also oppose the measure. Ann Summers, with the group Not Dead Yet, says it would have catastrophic consequences. As the abuse of elders and people with disabilities is on the rise, under these supposed safeguards, an abusive caregiver could easily steer someone towards assisted suicide, witness the request, and even administer the drug, and nobody would know. What's more, she says, assisted suicide isn't being utilized for the reasons many would expect. One of the main talking points that is often aired is that this is a policy solution to intractable suffering and pain. Um, that would be wonderful if it was, but it's not. Pain doesn't even break the top five reasons given for asking for this medication, this lethal dose. The top five reasons are actually disability-related reasons. They're social factors. Loss of autonomy, decreased ability to take part in activities that made life enjoyable, loss of dignity, and feeling like a burden to family members top the list in Oregon. And Summers says the response to these issues should be better support rather than suicide assistance. In addition to disability rights advocates, many doctors, along with the American Medical Association, oppose legalizing assisted suicide. Dr. Alan Roberts is one of at least 15 district doctors petitioning counsel not to pass the bill. There is a good faith relationship between the physician and the patient, which involves the promotion of health and healing, comfort and pain relief, not the distribution of 
death by prescription. And support from the medical community could be critical for the bill's passage. That was the case in California, where a right-to-die bill wasn't approved until the state's medical association dropped its opposition to the measure and took a neutral stance. But in the district, Councilmember Mary Che, who introduced the bill, isn't so concerned. I feel confident that I have both the votes in the committee and on the council. Right now, the bill is waiting on Council Health and Human Services Committee Chair Yvette Alexander to move it forward. Alexander is Catholic, but a spokesperson says her religion won't impact her choice. I'm Violet Ekonomova. in a minute. It was haunting for me to just listen to that deep sound. A Palestinian virtuoso brings DC flavor to traditional Middle Eastern music. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. It's been a year since D.C. residents overwhelmingly approved a ballot initiative legalizing marijuana in the district. Next came a congressional review, then an effort to stymie it by Republican Congressman Andy Harris of Maryland's Eastern Shore. But finally, in February, the initiative became law. What D.C. hasn't yet been able to do is put in place regulations allowing the retail sale of marijuana. But that hasn't stopped a number of entrepreneurs from entering the world of canna business Some people in the district are setting up operations to help Washingtonians grow their own marijuana. Lauren Ober recently talked with one such entrepreneur about his efforts to get ahead of the cannabis curve. There's a nondescript office building in Adams Morgan that's shoehorned between a liquor store and a Starbucks. On the second floor in Suite 105 is what will become the district's first cannabis school. It's called Capsterdam University, and it's modeled after Oaksterdam University in Oakland, California. Both names pay homage to the legal weed capital of the world, Amsterdam. Inside the small three-room office, I meet this guy. My name is Donald Pereira. I'm a founder of Capsterdam University. It's a fully educational program on the law, civics, history, different ways of ingestion and obviously growing horticulture, hydroponics, indoor grows. Pereira was one of a handful of people in D.C. who was permitted to cultivate marijuana for medicinal use. He's also a graduate of the Oaksterdam program. His diploma sits on a windowsill in the school's demonstration grow room. When D.C. voters passed Initiative 71 last November, Pereira saw an opportunity. First and foremost, we're in the right place in the right time. The stars have aligned as far as how and why. But um, ultimately, it's about education. It's about informing people in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia what's going on. You know, there's a a new law, and people need to know what that law is and and how to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. Walk me through the services that you feel like Capstone University will provide. D.C. residents have no clue, well, as far as I'm concerned, have no clue on farming. And, um, you know, what are you going to do with the stock when it's done? 
What are you going to do with the nutrient after you finish? Are you going to put down the toilet? Are you going to put down the sink? And there's a lot of things that need to be known. For example, um, a thousand watt light bulb you're going to need to produce the best flower. And those thousand watt light bulbs take a lot of energy. You're going to need a, a ballast. You can't just put that plug right into your socket. So these are the type of things that we're going to be teaching. And ultimately growing high-grade, mold-free, mildew-free, paranoia-free cannabis. There are plenty of people who have been growing their own marijuana. There are plenty of people who know how to make edibles and all of this stuff. But how do you know that anyone knows what they're doing? You know, um, the main thing that Capsterdam University is going to be is creating a standard for the cannabis industry. What is the right way? What is the wrong way? There's nothing black and white. There's a lot of gray area. And uh, we're here to, you know, create that standard. In D.C., you can't grow plants in public view. You can't. It has to be in your house. So what are some of the challenges that people might come across when they're trying to do this? Well, you have to understand, first and foremost, that when you grow indoors, you have become Mother Nature. Okay. You control the sun, you control the rain, you control the soil, you know, you control your environment. And, you know, that's going to be the main thing that, that we focus on is having the, the best environment for these cannabis plants to bloom. And, 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 there, and there is an environment that this cannabis really likes. And we're going to teach you that. What do you like about growing cannabis? Like what, what gets you up in the morning to, you know, to go cultivate? The results. You know, if, even if when you're setting goals, you know, when you set a goal and you see that goal accomplished, you know, when you score a touchdown, you know, uh, that feeling, seeing the growth, seeing them from seed all the way to flower is just an amazing thing. It's really an amazing thing. That was Donald Pereira, a founder of Capsterdam University, speaking with Lauren Ober. We move now from Adams Morgan to neighboring Columbia Heights. If you've ever strolled through Meridian Hill Park on a Sunday, you've probably heard the sound of dozens of drums echoing off the apartment buildings on 16th Street. The park's drum circle dates back to the 1960s, when Meridian Hill, also known as Malcolm X Park, was a center of activism in the district. These days, as the city changes, the drum circle is changing too. Vera Carruthers takes us into the circle's history and finds out why some longtime drummers say the beat just isn't what it used to be. It's Sunday afternoon in early fall, and Meridian Hill Park is full of people. Patong players share space with picnickers, jugglers teach little kids their tricks, and acro yogis create an impressive human pyramid. In the background, you can hear the persistent beating of the drum circle. Julia Ticona lives a few blocks away. She says this is the scene every Sunday in the warm months of the year. You know, people kind of slowly trickle in and stake out their spots, and it becomes this, like, geography of blankets and people in yoga pants and drummers and, you know. It's like a music festival. It's a rare place where people of different backgrounds can encounter each other, she says. This is one of the reasons her husband, Dan, who is originally from Peru, moved to the neighborhood 14 years ago. He says although it's a diverse neighborhood, different groups don't mix much on the street. But at the park, it almost feels like you enter the park and that 
weirdness or being uncomfortable around different is out the door. What may not be obvious to passers-by, however, is that the circle has a very specific history and meaning. The circle began during the civil rights struggle in the 1960s. My name is William Cottle. William Cottle has been drumming at the circle for over 40 years. What kind of drums are these? This is really, this is the samba. Cottle grew up in Anacostia and started playing drums in his basement at age five. Kept me out of trouble and, you know, and I was in heaven. Since then, drumming has become somewhat of a religion for him. Drumming is good for my heart and it was what God gave mankind to communicate to. Drumming at Meridian Hill Park is special in particular for Cottle because of the circle's history that dates back to February 1965. The day that Malcolm X was assassinated, was I think was the day that Bob and Goma started drumming in, in Meridian Hill Park every Sunday. Cottle remembers when it was just Baba and Goma, the house drummer for Howard Theater, practicing alone in the park. But as the fight for equality gained momentum in D.C., drumming became the soundtrack for the movement. Cottle says drumming provided a way for black Washingtonians to connect with African culture. African Americans have grown here out of slavery, so we have to go back to move forward now. About a mile from Meridian Hill at Howard University, students and professors had been studying African history and culture since the emergence of Pan-Africanism after World War I. Blair Rubel, a historian and author of Washington's U Street, a biography, explains that at the time, these fields of study were ignored by mainstream white universities. In D.C., however, black cultural movements were widespread and growing. It was a city that was open to and supported African-American cultural visions, which range from integrationist to separatist to nationalist to pan-African. This was the place where they all had institutional roots. The park was the center of the action. It was a natural gathering point in the heart of black Washington. William Cottle says drummers gathered there on Sundays to riff off each other's rhythms and to release feelings of stress, frustration, and anger from the week. It was good therapy for African Americans. These days, however, he says the spiritual magic is no longer working. No, I feel a little beat down at the circle, ignored. I wanted to be spiritual. I really wanted to be holistic, and that's not happening. Cottle says it has become a musical free-for-all and tourist attraction, with all the new people joining the circle in recent years. Yeah, it's too much frolic going on. It's no real oneness, unity. The electricity is not really flowing honestly. For some residents, like Julia Tacona, who moved here two years ago, the circle is a way to learn more about D.C. Tacona says attending the circle exposed her to the civil rights struggle here in the district, something she knew little about. As a white person living in the city, the park and the drumming circle in particular is a space that lets me understand a little bit more about the long history of the city and the history of the civil rights struggle in this area, which is such an important part of that history. I don't know if I would have ever understood that if I hadn't gone to the drumming circle and been like, oh, hey, this has been going on for how long? I'm Vera Carruthers. You've heard the drum circle drummers, now see them in action. We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. 
In Washington, D.C., musicians from all over the world often make a living doing jobs that have nothing to do with their art. In our next story, Ali Schweitzer introduces us to a Palestinian engineer who spends her free time crafting some of the city's most entrancing music. In Middle Eastern music, the oud is king. It's a stringed instrument related to the guitar and the lute. And when you hear one played by a virtuoso, it's hard not to become transfixed. That is what happened to Palestinian musician Hudas for. She is a prominent oud player in D.C., having fallen under the instrument's spell as a child when she first heard her grandfather play it. I was fascinated by the instrument. He plays the oud. And it was haunting for me to just listen to that deep sound. The oud is one of the oldest instruments in the world, dating back to the Egyptian pharaohs, if not earlier. And today, it's deeply embedded in Arab culture. Most famous players of the oud are men. But Huda says the oud was important for women in her family, too. For me, it, it seems like it was always part of the household, and it was kind of a part of the culture that women played the instrument. Huda was born in Lebanon during the 1982 Israeli invasion. When she was growing up, her family moved around a lot, usually to escape conflict. They settled down in Syria, Tunisia, the cities of Gaza and Ramallah, and later Egypt. But Huda's mother was determined to make her daughter a musician. So at age 13, she began formal music training. And that wasn't typical for girls. Of, of course, like I was the only female playing in an orchestra of probably something like 10, 10 musicians, all men, when I was 14. But even as Huda's family encouraged her music, as she got older, they urged her to consider a more practical career path, especially because she turned out to be great at math and science. And at one point, her math teacher found out she wanted to make a living playing music. He sort of flipped out. <laughs> so, uh, and then he made it his mission to convince me to, to actually try engineering. Huda and her family lived through the 2002 Israeli siege in Ramallah. And three years later, she got a scholarship to study electrical engineering at George Washington University in DC. She got her degree there and then switched to biomedical engineering, focusing on another kind of instrument the human heart. I don't know, as an engineer, I feel like it's, it's a brilliant design for a pump. So I was completely fascinated by it. And that's how I kind of got into this whole uh, research field. These days, Huda works as a postdoctor of science at GW, but she is still serious about her music. In fact, while earning her PhD, she recorded her first album. It is a hypnotic work, and it merges classical, folk, and contemporary sounds. It's called Mars, Back and Forth. She says the title speaks to a fantasy she's always had, about finding a home without borders. I mean, not just the Palestinian, I think for, for, for many people around the world, there's, there's a problem called passports. I mean. Uh, it was difficult to visit my family because I was Palestinian. So the 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 problem of borders is is very uh, alive in my childhood. After living in the U.S. for 10 years now, Huda has put down roots. She's one of the founders of the annual D.C. Palestinian Film and Arts Festival. She's collaborated with D.C. poets and jazz musicians, and she says she broadens her creative range even more on two recording projects she's working on now. 
but Huda says her upbringing amid conflict made a lasting imprint on her music. And in some ways, her work is both a reminder of her past and her way of dealing with it. It was very difficult to, to accept the, the painful realities that you live through during wars. Um, and, and, and when you be, when I, I think it's kind of sobering when you live through war, to, you start looking at everything, I think, with, with, with a different lens. I'm Ali Schweitzer. You can hear more of Huda Asfor's music on our website, metroconnection.org. Before we say goodbye today, we'll turn the microphone over to you to read from your emails and messages about recent editions of Metro Connection. In response to our story about Ed Walker, who passed away last month, and his longtime co-host Willard Scott, listener Jane writes, Ed and Willard, the Joy Boys, were favorites of my late husband and mine. They were a great team. So sad to know of Ed's passing. And listener Charlene writes simply, I loved them. Our story on non-traditional gun owners in Virginia sparked plenty of debate on our website and on social media. Lynn Harris tweeted us to say, As a Northern Virginia resident, I find this gun fetish delusion reprehensible and morally bankrupt. She then adds, Waiting to hear your stories on guns illegally trafficked from Virginia to other states, gun show loopholes, and Virginia Tech survivors. Another listener, Kate Kay, questioned polling data from the Pew Research Center cited in the story. As far as the demographics of gun owners, she writes, as a social scientist who deals with survey data, the science tells us it is extremely likely that A, surveys on how many gun owners are in the U.S. are severe undercounts, and B, the demographics within those surveys most undercount women, minorities, and younger persons. Do you have a comment on a story you've heard on the show? Let us know. Email us at metro at wamu.org. Find us on Facebook or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And that's Metro Connection for this week. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our weekly podcast and to our Twitter and Facebook pages so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.